0: Welcome to Episode 3 of the Threads Podcast. We're going to pick up today exactly where we left off in Episode 2. We're going to get on with talking about the major changes that took place in the structure of the universe as it was understood during the Renaissance. And we're going to take a look at some really important figures from the history of science and we're going to talk about how those people and their work influenced poetry and culture in a major way. So let's get going. In the generation of great thinkers following Copernicus another name springs up again and again and we're going to take a while to talk about one of the most important scientists in history. His name is Johannes Kepler. Johannes Kepler is not just a great scientist, but also an interesting person and a human being. And like all human beings, he can be motivated and impressed by things with awesome, dramatic, sublime power. When he was six years old, there was a comet in the sky, and he actually wrote about this comet. He said he was taken by his mother to a high place to look at it. Now, if you've seen a great comet, Perhaps you saw in the 1990s the halley Bop comet, which was a very impressive sight. It's hard not to be motivated by something as dramatic and huge as that. Johannes Kepler developed a strong interest in astronomy, and he always wanted to study. He always wanted to learn, and he wanted to learn mathematics. Like most mathematicians and astronomers of the time, he developed an interest in astrology in the future, I'll do an entire episode on the relationship between astrology and science. They're not separable, and it's an interesting story. Kepler was introduced to the Ptolemaic system and the Copernican system, and he was more convinced by Copernicus's version when he was a young adult. In some ways, Kepler is an easy person to admire because of his rigorous adherence to the practice of logic and applying that to his own thinking. Looking at his writing, he seems to be quite a consistent person. That said, he did come up with some esoteric and unusual beliefs. But what's interesting about Kepler is his determination to use evidence to demonstrate whether his mathematical models valid. And one notable example of this is in a book he wrote called Mysterium Cosmographicum. 1596 this was published. So he would have been about 25 at the time. And we're talking about 60 years after the death of Copernicus. Kepler realized that there was another way to restore perfection to Copernicus's universe without using epicycles. And that was instead of relying purely on circles to use another type of perfection, which comes down to us from the philosopher Plato. This is based on the the geometric concept of platonic solids. Now, platonic solids, to summarize, are really just a set of three-dimensional shapes. They include the tetrahedron, which is the shape of a four-sided dice, the cube, the octahedron, which is like two square-based pyramids stuck together, and then the dodecahedron and the icosahedron, both of which are just three-dimensional shapes, one which has pentagon-shaped sides and the other triangular sides. What's special about platonic solids is that all of their faces are regular shapes with equal-sized angles, and all faces are the same shape. So this has a type of mathematical simplicity to it that a lot of polygons don't. So Kepler came up with this model in which you could fit each of the motions of the planets into a different platonic solid. He worked extensively on it. He came up with diagrams showing what the model might look like, embedding different planets into different points onto platonic solids on the hope that he'd be able to use them To explain retrograde motions of some planets. The difference between planets and stars. And the fact that the sun and moon orbit in a different way to all the other objects. It was a lovely idea. And his drawing of it in Mysterium Cosmographicum is quite a nice drawing. He shows it like a little model on a desk an object that you could possibly have and turn around and look at, like an armillary sphere, but for a completely different model. By the way, if you haven't seen armillary spheres, they're extremely beautiful objects. Some of them are huge, several meters across, and they're designed to allow you to predict the positions of stars and planets, but using a mechanism instead of using pure mathematics. All the armillary spheres I've seen Place the Earth at the centre and the stars moving around the edge. But there's nothing wrong with this. Predictively, it's valid. From your position on the Earth, that is what happens. They would give you an interesting view on what up and down are because you're placing a star, sun, uh, a universe shaped object in your room, where gravity exists separately, pointing downwards towards your ground. Anyway, Kepler's idea was wonderful, but it doesn't actually work. There are some predictions it just doesn't quite make right. It works fairly well, for a while, but it drifts, it drifts away, and it drifts away from the true observations over time. And because Kepler spent much of his adult life working in observatories and making observations, um, in notably, with another astronomer called Tycho Brahe, he eventually had to reject the idea. The evidence just didn't support it. And that's the mark of a great scientist, as stated by Carl Sagan in his great series Cosmos. Of course, the word scientist wasn't being used at that time, but this is something we can look back at and recognize in a really truly rational thinker. Another thing that's notable about Kepler is that his mother was accused of witchcraft. And as an intellectual, he he returned home from his studies in order to defend her in court. Again, the notes from this trial show the thinking of a man who is exasperated and fiercely determined that rationality should be obeyed, accusations should be supported by evidence, and theories should be backed up by the reality. He won the case, as far as I'm aware, which could, which gives a testament to his convincingness. It can be difficult to persuade a mob, but his rejection of all the spurious claims made by the prosecution was successful in the end. Now, Kepler had to reject the platonic solids, so... Why is he so important? Well, I haven't got to his main amendment to the theory. Without the platonic solids, Kepler had to go back to the drawing board. And it's then that he eventually comes up with a model that does repair the agreement between the heliocentric model and the observations. And it's so minor to you and I, that we can't possibly see just how significant it was at the time. Kepler proposes some laws of planetary motion, and they're very simple laws, and they work like this. First of all, he says that the orbit of any planet is an ellipse, an oval shape, and the sun is in the centre of this, Now, technically, an ellipse has two focal points, but the sun only needs to be at one of these two. And then, he goes on to say, well, the planets will sweep out an equal area of their ellipse for every equal interval of time that they pass. Now, that's easy to represent on a diagram. There's a link in the show notes to such a diagram hard to represent in words so a simpler way of putting it would be this when these planets move closer to the sun they have to travel faster in order to sweep out an equal area when they're far away from the sun the triangles they sweep out are very long so they don't have to move as far in a way he's describing what we now call gravity in some way or another or at least one aspect of it kepler's elliptical orbits are extremely good at predicting the positions of Mars in the sky. And Mars was considered to be the most unpredictable planet at this time. And so, it's a successful theory. Using Kepler's logic and his adherence to evidence, we've got a success here. Kepler's fixed Copernicus's model, so we can put the sun at the middle again. So here we are. Again, the direction of down just points to the center of the Earth now. It's not the center of the universe. Which puts Giotto's perspective into a little bit of doubt. I think one would naturally expect hell to be right in the middle of the universe. And if it's not, if it's part of a moving object floating through the universe, it just seems a little precarious to the imagination. But this is why the ellipses are so important. We're not using platonic solids of any kind not even circles. There's nothing perfect about an ellipse. So if this really is the shape, we now start to have a little bit of a philosophical problem. Did God not make the solar system perfect? Is it flawed? Because an egg shape doesn't seem perfect. An ellipse doesn't seem perfect. It's just a circle that's been squashed. It's a deformed shape. Or is it something else? Well, Kepler doesn't answer that. But he does provide something that Europe's mathematicians wanted and that was a model that can be used powerfully to make predictions. Now, this starts to add a little bit more weight to this model, which isn't taken up by everyone at this time, by the way. I could do a whole episode talking about criticisms of Copernicus. But one particular character who does take this up and gets very interested in it is a name you've certainly heard of before. We have to go to the Duchy of Florence to look at this next character. And he's going to lead us on to one of the most important poetical works in the English language. He was born in 1564 and his name is Galileo Galilei. Galileo was considered a champion of the Copernican model at the time. He wrote letters to Kepler, and Kepler wrote letters back. The two of them knew each other. Of course, if you met another intellectual in Europe working in the field of astronomy, you probably wanted to keep in touch. There was only so many of them at the time, and very few who had the resources to make actual observations. It took a lot of time and a lot of effort to make observations at this time. And so if someone else has got some observations, you really want to try and befriend that person and hope that you can use them. At least, that's what you would hope would happen. Actually, the correspondence between Galileo and Kepler is not nearly as extensive as you'd expect for two people who are now remembered as the greats of science of this period. In 1597... Kepler's book landed on Galileo's desk. Actually, by kind of accident, Kepler had asked a friend of his to give the books to anyone who might be interested. And the friend only remembered this on his way back from Rome. He just happened to be in Padua at the time, which is where Galileo was. And Galileo wrote a letter to Kepler saying, thanks for the book, it's interesting. This book was Mysterium Cosmographicum. This is the book in which he proposed his platonic solids model of the solar system. And so it does contain some... Mm, somewhat mystical thinking that may not have appealed to Galileo. But I think Galileo remembered the name over the years as, you know, this is a person who I can write to who is a skilled mathematician. However, it wasn't 13 years later until 13 years later that there was really any more correspondence that we're aware of between the two of them. Um, So when Galileo first published his observations of Jupiter with the telescope in 1610... He wrote to people who he thought might support him. And he had already seen from the first book that Kepler was also a supporter of the Copernican theory. So he asks for support. And Kepler Kepler actually writes a series of essays that are really, really gushing in support of Galileo. Like, he's such a fanboy of Galileo by this point. Galileo's starting to become quite well-known, quite famous. And certainly more so than Kepler, who's seven years younger at this point. But really, like, uh, a proper dialogue back and forth of letters never really properly establishes itself between these two men. And it's a shame, because I feel like they could have exchanged so much. Now, this is a time in history when the telescope has only just been invented. Anyone who wants to look closely at the sky has to make their own telescopes, has to grind their own lenses and has to arrange them correctly in order to gain a clear image. But Galileo is fascinated by observations, and he thinks that that's the way to improve our knowledge of the solar system. And Galileo makes a a realization about what's above us that hasn't really been made by anyone else before, even after Kepler comes up with the elliptical model. And it's simple, and it's so incredibly simple, Why does the Moon have phases? Well, it's well known at this time that the Sun illuminates the Moon. The Moon is full when it's on the opposite side of the Earth to the Moon. And when the Moon is half, it's 90 degrees. It's perpendicular to the line that joins the Earth and the Sun. And that we get a new Moon when the Moon is close in the sky to the Sun. We know this because we can see the new moon, we can see a narrow crescent, the light of the sun reflecting up from the big oceans of the world illuminates the dark side of the moon slightly, take a look next time there's a crescent in your area if you've never noticed before, the dark side on a clear night is quite visible and therefore we know that the moon is there and we know that it's not really a new moon when we call it that, it's the same moon as we had before. Galileo is the one who reasons that if this illuminates, if this is how the moon is illuminated, and if Venus and the other objects in the solar system are also planets, then they should too have phases, as we'll see them from different angles at different times. Galileo points his telescopes at Venus, and he says, Well, if I see phases, ...of Venus, and it's not full all the time. Then Copernicus was right. Ptolemy was wrong. There's a Galileo Museum in Florence today. And in it, there's quite a few telescopes of the period... ...but in particular, they have one lens... ...taken from a telescope that is known to have been one of Galileo's early telescopes. Perhaps that really is the lens through which he first saw the phases of Venus and became the only person in the world who knew for certain that the sun was at the center of the solar system and that the direction up is something that's just moving around as we spin on the surface of our spinning earth. Of course, intellectuals had been confident about the movements of the earth and the sun to some extent at various times in history but the observation of Venus could not have been explained in any other way. So, really, Galileo looking through that telescope was for a small time before he managed to tell anyone the only person in the world who absolutely knew that the Earth was moving around the Sun. <sighs> Seeing Galileo's lens for me was a deeply moving experience. And I cannot really describe how significant it felt to me looking at that lens, but what I can do is I can show you that it's not just me. Here's Robin Stapps of the German band The Ocean from their album Heliocentric, expressing what I feel is a very similar sentiment. Could short the long story of Galileo's troubles with the church in his life, he got confined to his house and placed under house arrest for his old age. As I said, these models of the universe put our traditional Western European Christian view of heaven and hell in serious jeopardy and they cause philosophical problems. In some cases, those philosophical problems have been resolved by changing the way we talk about these things it would have been acceptable for christianity to make this change at the time because it's not explicit in the bible where heaven and hell should be located it doesn't physically describe their positions indeed hell is not really mentioned in the bible but the church chose to go the other way it chose the oppressive route kepler didn't get this and it's probably because the territories he lived in weren't as well controlled by the church and it's probably as well because Galileo himself was quite a bombastic public speaker, and he didn't mind saying what he thought. So he probably seemed like someone who should be silenced. But that confinement to his house created incredible opportunity, and it meant that he was a famous old intellectual. He went blind, by the way, which meant he must have lived out his later years knowing he couldn't see Venus again, he couldn't see the moon again. But when he was very old, around 1628, he took a visitor and that visitor was relatively unknown at the time, an Englishman who was enthused by the ideas of Galileo and he was traveling Europe looking for great thinkers and interesting ideas and interesting conversations. So he turned up at Galileo's door after writing a letter and was allowed in and he sat and the two men talked significantly. Galileo had a lot to say, and his visitor was very, very keen to listen and make notes. That visitor would become incredibly well-known when he wrote one of the most important poems in history, nearly 30 years later. Taste brought death into the world, and all our woes, and loss of Eden. And that man was called John Milton. And the poem he then writes is called Paradise Lost. By the way, this opera we're listening to. ...was written between 1975 and 1978... ...by a Polish composer called Krzysztof Penderecki. I find it absolutely beautiful. There's a little circularity here... ...that this opera, which is titled Paradise Lost... ...and it is directly based on Milton's work... ...was written by a Polish man... ...who at that point in his life... Was spending a lot of his time working in Warsaw, a city that commemorates Copernicus in a big way. There's a statue of him outside the Staszic Palace in Warsaw, where the Polish Academy of Sciences makes its home. Copernicus, as I mentioned, was a Polish speaker and was from the Polish world, although Polish, Poland wasn't a um, nation-state at the time he lived. It's magnificent. Is it a coincidence? I couldn't tell you. But it's beautiful nonetheless. If you've not heard of John Milton, let me tell you this about him. He added more words to the English language than William Shakespeare. You'll know some of them. Words like pandemonium, paradise lost, is a book about the relationship between the earth and heaven and hell. And you can see the influence of Galileo all over it. Not that Galileo had a hand in writing the book, but that conversation clearly made a lasting impact on our young John Milton. In the poem, Paradise Lost, Galileo is even named directly, At one point in the story, God has learned that Satan has a plan to go to Adam and Eve and speak to them, and he sends one of his archangels, Raphael, down to intercede on this. Raphael descends from heaven to earth, and at this point in the story, the poem goes, On each hand parting to his speed gave way through all the imperial road, Till at the gate of heaven arrived, the gate self-opened wide on golden hinges turning as by work divine the sovereign architect had framed. From hence no cloud, or to obstruct his sight, star interposed, however small he sees, not unconformed to other shining globes, earth and the garden of God with cedars crowned above all hills. As when by night the glass of Galileo, less assured, observes imagined lands and regions in the moon, or Pilate from amidst the de Cyclades, Delos, or Samos first appearing, kens a cloudy spot. I think the direct naming of Galileo is a deliberate decision to pay respect to the great thinker who was long dead by then. Later, Raphael arrives and speaks to Adam. And Adam asks him to explain how does heaven exist? How is it separate from the earth? It's an oddly phrased request, so I'm paraphrasing it. But Raphael answers it in an interesting way. He's uncertain how to speak to a human about the shape and nature of heaven. He seems to think that perhaps it can't really be explained, or that it's something that's forbidden knowledge for humans, although he agrees to do so. But in doing so, he describes the cosmology of the universe somewhat, at least as he understands it. And it's quite beautifully written, but it also says something about how how a, an ordinary person might have felt about the Kepler slash Copernicus model of the universe at this time. I'm going to read Raphael's full answer, or at least... The part that's relevant to cosmology. He says this High matter thou enjoinest me, O prime of men, sad task and hard, for how shall I relate to human sense the invisible exploits of warring spirits? How, without remorse, the ruin of so many glorious once and perfect while this stood? How last unfold the secrets of another world, perhaps not lawful to reveal? Yet for thy good this is dispensed, And what surmounts the reach of human sense I shall delineate so, By likening spiritual to corporeal forms, As may express them best. Though what if earth be but a shadow of heaven, And things therein each to other like, More than on earth is thought? And yet this world was not, And chaos wild reigned where these heavens now roll, Where earth now rests upon her centre poised, when on a day, for time though in eternity applied to motion, measures all things durable by present, past, and future. On such day as heaven's great year brings forth, the imperial host of angels by imperial summons called, innumerable before the Almighty's throne forthwith from all the ends of heaven, appeared under their hierarchs in orders bright, ten thousand thousands ensigns high advanced, Standards and gonfalons, twixt fan and rear, stream in the air, and for distinction serve of hierarchies of orders and degrees. Or, in their glittering tissues bare emblazed, holy memorials, acts of zeal and love recorded eminent. Thus when in orbs of circuit inexpressible they stood, Orb within orb, the Father infinite, by whom in bliss the unbosomed sat the sun, amidst from a flaming mount, whose top brightness had made invisible, thus spake. Now, the Lord goes on to discuss the relationship between him, his son, and the earth. But I think there's something about motion there that wouldn't have been present in previous generations. An adherence to the passage of time time, though in eternity, applied to motion measures all things durable, there's almost a superiority of time to the power of spirits. It's almost like it can't be stopped. And what I find really interesting is that there's a tiny little echo of Ovid's creation myth and the one that was discussed in Gilgamesh of the Earth arising from chaos as though there was something there before, which is not normally said in Christianity. It took a long time for these scientific ideas to work their way into ordinary thought, but I think through poetry we can see how people who are not really studying the heavens are thinking about things and how these ideas are affecting them. I think Milton is getting in there before a lot of people by having this personal conversation with Galileo and thinking about it for many years afterwards. But this is important because John Milton is using the ideas of Galileo and Kepler, but also restoring a heavenly narrative to them. There's one other segment in book two of Paradise Lost, where I think we can see the influence of some of those circular scientific diagrams that I mentioned coming up. At this point in the story, Satan is making his journey from heavens to earth. And his journey is described directly in this poem. It's an epic poem, and it describes many fantastical things. In this section, the poem has some interesting language. Milton describes Satan's journey like this. But now at last the sacred influence of light appears, And from the walls of heaven shoots far Into the bosom of dim night a glimmering dawn. Here, nature first begins her farthest verge, And chaos to retire as from her outmost works A broken foe, with tumult less and with less hostile din, That Satan with less toil and now with ease Wafts on the calmer wave by dubious light, And like a weather-beaten vessel holds gladly the port, those shrouds and tackle torn, Or in emptier waste resembling air Weighs his spread wings, At leisure to behold far off the imperial heaven, Extended wide in circuit, Undetermined square or round, With opal towers and battlements adorned Of living sapphire, once his native seat. And fast by, hanging in a golden chain, This pendant world, in bigness as a star Of smallest magnitude close by the moon, Thither, full fraught with mischievous revenge, A cursed and in a cursed hour he hies. I mentioned earlier that the idea of the Earth spinning round the sun at high speed might feel a little bit unsettling and unsteady to some people who are maybe used to the idea that the Earth is a solid thing at the centre of the universe. And here it is. Hanging in a golden chain this pendant world. Dangling. I think the chain is an interesting addition. It shows that Milton hasn't really grasped the idea of gravity. He hasn't really grasped the idea that the planets don't know an external notion of downness. Because he's trying to envision the Earth from a distance. And he's created, using language, using words, something that is very similar to an image scientists around the world often like to bring up the image of the pale blue dot taken by the Voyager probe as it passed Saturn of the Earth as a tiny dot in the distance he's trying to give us a feeling of the tininess of the Earth in the universe dangling on this tiny chain in bigness as a star to me as a physicist sounds like he's describing something huge but a star star is a tiny dot He's trying to imagine what the earth would look like from a great distance and he gets it bang on because we have that photo now and we know that it looks exactly like a star from a distance. But there it is, that sense of frailty, a weakness of the earth. Those models changed the way even poets think about the universe forever. In the 17th century we see a lot of depictions and a lot of poems that are suggestive that there's some sort of friction abounding between this new philosophical man-made view of the universe compared to the more comfortable and more traditional religious view of the world an interesting diagram that's shown in a book by Father Riccioli which was a book about the new Almagest in Latin, published in 1651, shows the systems of the world. You can see these drawings of a heliocentric and a clearly geocentric solar system. They're drawn almost like clockworks. They're reminiscent of astrolabes, which are devices that any intellectual would have been familiar with at this time. If you've never seen astrolabes, please check the link in the show notes. I've posted a picture to a particularly beautiful one. They were astounding works of art. They were stunning objects to look at. But they were also extremely useful functional items. Their function was to be a handy object that could predict the positions of objects in the sky. Nowadays, we'd use a star map for this. But an astrolabe was a clockwork sort of mechanism using an astrolabe was quite complicated, so much so that they had to get Geoffrey Chaucer to write a manual for one. They had been around for a significant time before Chaucer's manual. But it made understanding and using the astrolabe much more available to a wider range of people who previously had had to be shown, given the lessons explained in detail. Now, in order to give some context to the image of Riccioli's book, we need to understand that he's trying to present another adjustment to the system of the, sea, of the planets. So, on the ground in Riccioli's drawing, fallen on the floor, almost discarded, we can see Ptolemy's system with the Earth at the centre, the planets all orbiting the same centre. In fact, Ptolemy herself is sitting there on the floor. You can see a quotation coming out of his mouth. He's saying, I will arise if only I am corrected. And then in the balance, we see the goddess of the heaven, Astrea, who is normal to depict other goddesses besides the Christian God himself in these stylized Renaissance drawings. She's holding the balance and we can see Riccioli's own calculations from which he's drawn his own diagram outweighing the Copernican system. Riccioli has placed the Earth at the center, but then he's got a complicated series of different orbits where the Moon is orbiting the Earth, the Sun orbits the Earth at a greater distance, and then Mercury and Venus are orbiting the Sun, and then there's another completely separate orbit for Mars, which appears to be centered on the Sun, although it's not incredibly clear from the diagram. At some point, I'm going to read Riccioli's book in detail and find out more. Something I find interesting about this drawing is that we can see the hand of God at the top, and there are words issuing forth from God's hand. We see a reference to the Book of Wisdom, 1020, and the quotation there is, But thou hast ordered all things in measure and number and weight. People are trying to show how the Bible justifies the search for knowledge and indeed the idea of using mathematics to measure the universe. Mathematicization is causing a lot of friction at this time because not everyone agrees that mathematics really can be used to describe the universe as it is. On the one hand, we have people like Descartes and Isaac Newton and on the other hand, we have a completely different set of views, ones which are almost unrecognizable today because, well, they've fallen into history. But that's that's a topic for another episode. Now that I've mentioned Isaac Newton, I need to bring him right into the center of this story. I think the work of Newton is probably the most important next step in the journey of up and down. Because what Isaac Newton does is he takes our knowledge of the shape of the universe that has been developed by Copernicus, expanded upon by Kepler and others, and Galileo has shown to be true through his observations. And Newton actually doesn't take us further away from the ordered, Christian, sensible universe. In fact, he brings the two back together in an interesting way. But in order to do that, he has to completely change the paradigm in which we think of perfection and order. He takes it away from geometry and takes it back towards sense and rationality. So it's often been told the story that Newton discovered gravity, but we can actually see references to gravity in Kepler long before Newton. In fact, I can't quote this directly, but I remember that Kepler wrote that he had the opinion that if two stones were suspended in space some distance from one another, that they would attract, and that the one that was heavier would attract the other with a greater motive force. Kepler recognized that objects were attracting each other in some way, and he also recognized that something about their size gave an indication as to how attractive they would be. That's a very direct principle of gravity as we now understand it. But it's just a sentence. Kepler doesn't attempt to use maths to justify that claim at all. It feels like a bit of an offhand. It's not the centre of any of his points. And in all of Kepler's laws, he never really gives a phenomenological explanation for the orbits. He describes them, but he doesn't explain them. This is the context in which which Newton exists. Now, I'm going to just resort to some poetry a little bit before I go into the true genius and... Uh, ...substance of what Newton does. Um, Firstly, I want to just investigate this friction that I've mentioned... ...in a little bit more detail. And I'm going to go to um, some more poets. In particular, we've got a poet called John Davies... ...who wrote a poem called Orchestra in 1596. So 1596 would be in the middle of Kepler's life... ...about 40 years... Forty-five years before Newton's birth. But again, it shows us some of that friction. He says, Only the earth doth stand for ever still, Her rocks remove not, nor her mountains meet. Although some wits enriched with learning's skill Say heaven stands firm, and that earth doth fleet, And swiftly turneth underneath their feet, Yet though the earth is ever steadfast seen, On her broad breast hath dancing ever been. He seems to be mocking the idea that the earth is moving simply by using the simple argument that we don't observe it. It doesn't feel that way. That we would dance and the earth would move underneath us when we do. A little later, a few years later in the year 1600, we have the writer John Norton saying, Yea now is proud the progress of the sun to differ far from pristine gradients, doth prove the heavens in their greatest pride, subject to changes. Subject to changes. So we can start to see that notion that the understanding of the world for people is actually in a state of change. It's no longer reliable. A little later... We have this remark from another poet, William Drummond, who says, The stargazer this round finds truly move in parts and whole, yet by no skill can prove the firmament's stay firmness. Again, we're seeing that friction. The stargazer is insistent that the world moves, but how can they prove that the firmament is staying still? Of course, they haven't recognized that the sky and the stars are two very separate things. The firmament is a word which makes it difficult to imagine any kind of motion. It's called the firmament. Firm means steady. And so it's not surprising that people found it difficult to imagine this this change in what they had been taught to believe their whole lives. And so in that context, we have Isaac Newton, who again, some time has passed, several decades. And Isaac Newton was certainly a devoted Christian. He really believed that the universe was created by a God and a perfect one at that. But he also was convinced by mathematics and he was an extremely skilled mathematician. And so, I don't think I need to make it my place here to tell the story of Newton's discovery. Although, I will say, if you don't know this already, it's unlikely the apple actually fell on his head. We only have the remark about the apple secondhand from someone who spoke to Newton about the incident several decades later. Newton reported that he was sitting watching the apples falling when he had the idea about gravity. He didn't say they were falling on his head, and I think that would be quite a relevant part of the story. Also, this is several decades after it happened, much later in his life. Now, we already have a notion of gravity from Kepler. We already have a valid model of the solar system that will make correct predictions about where the planets are, also from Kepler and Galileo. And Galileo's provided us with visual evidence that planets such as Venus and Mercury are orbiting the sun. So when we talk about Isaac Newton discovering gravity, it actually sounds relatively minor when we put it this way, because what Isaac Newton was really interested in was the way in which motions change. He did experimental work on mechanics, on moving objects. He watched the way their inertia affected their movement. He watched the way bigger objects were harder to accelerate. And he tried to develop a concept of force that could be used to make calculations on the motions of objects. And it's so in the context of that very small scale worldly work that he made his realization that it was a force pulling objects towards the Earth, just like a force can be applied to an object and made to push it, and that that same force is the one holding the objects in in orbit around the Earth. In some ways, it seems like a relatively minor step, likening that motion of objects on Earth, or objects thrown horizontally, to an orbit of something like the Moon. There's a metaphor called Newton's cannonball that explains this beautifully. Imagine you're throwing a cannonball horizontally. It'll go a certain way, but it'll hit the ground. If you fire it faster, it'll hit the ground further away, but it will still hit the ground. Newton says, well, we know the Earth is a sphere, so take your cannon up a mountain. Let's say you take your cannon up a mountain so large that by the time your cannonball falls down to the height of the ground, the ground has turned and gone away. Now there's no ground to hit. And now you have to look at the direction of the force pulling on your cannonball. On a drawing of the earth from the side, you can clearly see that the force itself must have rotated back to point towards the center of the earth in order for people to be able to stand upon that earth and feel down as down and the sky as up above. Otherwise, people would be falling off the sphere, and that's not what happens. So then with the cannonball, let's just say you can fire it so fast that it never does hit the ground. That that force arrow turns around just as fast as that velocity of the ball turns around. Then your ball will circle the earth once, and it will come all the way back to the cannon. This concept is not controversial today. We call it an orbit. And we have many thousands of objects tracing out these orbits every single day. Indeed, our entire communication system relies on them. But this idea, to someone who has been inculcated in an educational culture that reveres the ancient Greek philosophers and the work of Ptolemy, is quite revolutionary and it's also quite disturbing. It's disturbing because Aristotle told us that the heavens don't have to follow the same rules as things here on the earth. And that was the explanation for why things aren't falling down to the earth all the time. It's also disturbing because it takes away something about how special we feel the heavens are. If the heavens have to follow the same rules that exist on earth then how are angels supposed to live there? Now, it's not a fact that this theory makes it impossible to believe in those things. Of course it's not. But it's still a question that had to be addressed because this is not something people have had to consider before. In every age, we have new challenges posed by new discoveries that change our perception of what we're allowed to believe and how we're allowed to believe it. In the modern day, I think that that particular friction is much better expressed in terms of things like life and death and the soul and body relation. Because the concept of death has been stretched so far beyond what it was a few hundred years ago and certainly what it was when holy books of many religions were written. In postulating that the same gravity that pulls apples to Earth is that very force which keeps the planets and the stars in motion Newton has now torn down that barrier that separates the heavens from the earth. They're now one and the same thing, the universe. And so now we have to expand our view of the perfect world created by the Lord in Christianity. To include all of this stuff, and to consider how it can be perfect. Many people likened Newton's universe to a sort of clockwork machine that would just predictably trace out a bunch of rules over and over again, going round and round in eternal circles governed by something purely natural, just a simple force, just something that could be explained and calculated that wasn't the the mind of anyone particularly. It was just a machine. But Newton himself didn't really see it this way. In fact, he said, This most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent being. This being governs all things, not as the soul of the world, but as lord over all. And on account of his dominion, he is wont to be called Lord God, Pantocrator, or Universal Ruler. The supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, and absolutely perfect. So, Newton himself sees his discovery as evidence of an eternal, infinite, and absolutely perfect God. But not because the universe is clockwork, but because it's simple and beautiful and elegant. The law of universal gravitation, which is an equation developed by Newton, It's a pretty simple equation. You wouldn't need what we'd now consider to be really advanced mathematics to understand it. It's perfectly intelligible to the level that most people achieve by the time they're 16. It's not a complicated piece of maths. And to Newton, that's evidence of God, not a contradiction. But this does something quite difficult. It puts the heavens even further away than they were before. Our best guess at where the heavens were back in the Babylonian times, was just above the dome of the sky. It just had to be a little way beyond. In Ptolemy's time, it just had to be beyond the circling sphere of the heavens, which he knew was a long distance away. But Newton's work puts it in even greater distance. For Newton, the stars don't have to be in a single sphere. They could be further away. Although I don't have a quotation about him commenting on the distant stars. He's still focused on the solar system. But based on what he knows about the force of gravity, we can now calculate that the stars must be a considerable distance away, much further than the planets. Otherwise, we would see parallaxes in their motions. That is to say that we would see them move relative to each other, and we don't. The stars all seem to move at the same speed every single day. Now, actually, just as an aside, that's not true. The shape of the constellations has changed in the last couple of thousands of years. But it's not something people ever observe in their lifetimes. And it's so slow that it was difficult from the observations people were making back then to actually calculate those speeds. I think Newton's an interesting character and I'm going to do another episode in the future about why he called his laws laws. Newton became a judge himself and he was interested in law and civic stability and harmony. But it's not something I have time to go into right now. We now have a relatively stable view of up and down. Down is now the direction of Newton's force of gravity. And it now defines that direction. This is interesting to me because it tells us why the direction changes as we go around the Earth. And it tells us that the notion of a downward pointing feeling will exist no matter how high up we go. This is something people hadn't been able to really imagine or consider before. The idea of floating all the way up outside of the sky towards the moon was one which we could only really fantastically imagine about. But now we have something a little more concrete. Newton's able to imagine that gravity will point down on other worlds. And looking at the, by reading the works of Galileo, he can also imagine himself standing upon the moon. You see, Galileo did many observations of the moon. And he commented that it appeared to have valleys and mountains and hills like the Earth does. Galileo is the one who considered the world, the moon, might be a world in its own right. And now Newton's law of gravity allows us to consider that it might have its own gravity. Although the information wasn't available in Newton's time to actually calculate how powerful that gravity was and the fact that it would be a different force to the one we feel on Earth, a different magnitude. This way of seeing up and down is relatively stable and it takes a long time before we get another major change we're quite content living in our solar system with our planets our sun and our moon and our distant sphere of stars but these telescopes that people are making by hand continue to improve and it continues to become easier to observe fainter and more distant objects In 1734, which is not long after Newton's death, the scientist Emanuel Swedenborg speculates that there might be galaxies separate to the one we live in. He doesn't observe it, he just speculates it. Of course, anyone can see the Milky Way. And of course, the word galaxy comes from the Greek root word. That also gives us words like lactose and lactate. Words to do with milk. The phrase Milky Way is really just a translation of that. People didn't always know what the Milky Way was, but Swedenborg's not the first one to speculate that that faint white smudge is actually many, many stars. But it takes a very long time before we're able to really figure out what the true galaxies that we can see in the sky, such as the Magellanic Clusters and Andromeda, really are. It's a long time before anyone can speculate that those things are also galaxies. It takes it takes all the way till 1917, when the physicist Haber Curtis uses novae, which are a very predictable type of bright flash. Looking at ones that bo- happen both inside the Milky Way and ones that happen outside, in order to truly prove that Andromeda and that the other galaxies are the same kind of thing at an extremely great distance as the one we live in. Not long later, in 1925, a paper by Edwin Hubble is read out about the nature of Andromeda. And we go into the modern age of up and down, where down is merely a direction that points to the centre of the Earth we're standing on, which in itself feels a pull in the downward direction of the sun at the centre of our solar system. And it's then known that the sun is in its own turn feeling a pull, downwards, downwards towards the centre of our galaxy. But what's down below that? Well, there is a direction of a gravitational pull acting on our galaxy. But it's not particularly obvious what it points to. There isn't something there, there isn't a distinctive object there. And on the scale of superclusters of galaxies, a lot of this sort of stuff goes beyond the reach of our telescopes, goes too far away for us to actually see. Now, a few years before Edwin Hubble read out this paper, in 1917, Einstein himself weighed in on cosmology. And in order to do this, one of the postulates that he assumed was that the universe had to be homogeneous and static. That is to say that nothing was changing and that the universe would look more or less the same no matter what direction you looked in. It's doubtful whether Einstein would have proposed this if he had already done so in the light of Hubble's evidence about Novae. However, from Einstein's relativity, a really important point about Earth's place in the universe does emerge. And that's to do with the limitations of relativity. Now, I said moments ago that the center of the universe, if there is such a thing, is out of the reach of our modern telescopes. But as a result of Einstein's work, we have a an even more important concept with a similar consequence in physics, and that's called the observable universe. It's an interesting name. If you're standing in the universe, you of course do not have the technical capacity to observe the whole thing. Your eyes just aren't that good. And even if you get telescopes, they're just not that good. You can't see everything. But the combination of the expanding universe, which we find expands at every single point that it exists. And the limitation imposed upon information travel by the speed of light. The combination of these two concepts leads to an inescapable conclusion, which is that some objects could be so far away that they are receding from us so quickly that the light from those things can never reach us. And those things lie outside of the observable universe. This is not just a practical problem that means that we don't have the capacity to see those things. It's more philosophical than that. It's really more like saying those things do not exist in the universe we live in. There could not be a technology that would allow us to travel towards those things fast enough such that we would ever observe that light, receive that information, or know about those objects. And here we have our our conclusion about the size of the universe and Earth's place within it. That the universe is of such a vast scale that even if it were to have a center and that center were to be outside of the observable universe, that would be exactly equivalent to saying that the universe does not have a center at all, and in a way, that could be a bit like saying there is no absolute direction of down that you could hope to imagine. <laughs> it also means that you st- you yet again don't have an obvious place to put hell. <laughs> if hell is meant to be in the middle, well, it can't be in the middle of the universe. Because such a place doesn't seem to even exist. It simply isn't there. Because it's too far away. What Einstein's work on relativity tells us is that things that are outside of our reach of our telescopes, things from which the information of these events will never ever reach us, simply don't exist in our universe. And because everything expanded from this Big Bang at such an intense rate, an unknowable quantity of the universe is now outside of this reach. It no longer exists for us. Possibly it never did. That information is lost. And without knowing the true shape and the true size of the universe, we couldn't possibly know if it has a center or where that center is. It puts a limit on how far down you can go. And it also makes you realize that if you keep going up and up and up, you won't hit the ceiling of the sky. You won't find the edge of the heavens, and you won't find the home of Ishtar and the other gods. You'll just get so high that you can no longer tell which direction up is even in. Time, to open up your mind and watch the world spinning gently out of time. And that is it for this episode of the Threads Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please see the show notes for full credits for this episode. But I'd just like to take a moment to especially thank the ocean. ...for their song from the Heliocentric album. I'd like to credit NASA for the pale blue dot image. Of course, please go and read Paradise Lost by Nilsson if you're interested. And the song we're listening to now is by Blur. There's a couple of free sound sounds that are used in this episode. They're credited fully in the show notes. And, again, take a look at the show notes if you'd like to see any of the visual... that I referenced in this episode, as well as for more information. And please follow me on Instagram. I occasionally post pictures from the episodes or relating to the episodes or just other interesting history of science stuff and history of philosophy stuff. So please take a look on my Instagram, or you can always ask me questions there as well if there's anything you'd like to know more about or something you think that I could uh, expand on. Or even if you have corrections, I'd love to hear those too. So please just support the podcast in whatever way you can. If you would like to leave a review, don't hesitate to do so on whatever app that you're using. And of course, follow the podcast if you're not doing that already. And join us next time when we'll be talking about the myth of Frankenstein and how it's changed and affected the world through the ages since its inception.